But not everyone believes that biology is destiny. For many scientists, it's your experiences in life that count. Your upbringing, your education, your environment. Chief among these scientists is psychologist John Watson, who has a theory that is the nerve... Pigeon learned that pecking the disc produced a reward. Then the behavior of pecking could be studied in relation to how often that reward was offered. Or in Skinner's terms, what was the schedule of reinforcement? And you can schedule it so that the reward occurs every now and then when a pigeon does something. We usually use a response with pigeon pecking a disc. Welcome back to Spit and Twitches, the Animal Cognition Podcast. I'm your host, Dave Broadbeck. Today on episode four of the podcast, I've got Noam Miller from Wilfrid Laurier University. Uh, Noam's in the psychology department there, and he's an assistant professor where he runs the Collective Cognition Lab. Uh, Noam got his uh, undergrad degree in biology uh, from the University of Tel Aviv and a a music degree from the same school, which is, I think, from the same school. We'll find out when I talk to him. Um, That's great. Uh, I think that's kind of cool. He jokingly, when he gave me his bio, said for for some reason, I, I suspect... That it's probably because he's a good musician. He then went on to do uh, to work at U of T with uh, Sarah Shuttleworth uh, on geometrical uh, learning and with Robert Gerloy on schooling and zebrafish. Um, for those of you that who know me, know that I did my PhD with Sarah Shuttleworth. So Noam and I, in a lot of respects, are, we're brothers. We are brothers uh, academically, anyway. Um, Noam's interested basically in this idea of, of collective decision making, collective cognition, uh, and he has sort of a mathematical side to him that uh, I think we'll talk about a little bit now. I hope you enjoy this as much as I am about to, because I always record these things beforehand, breaking down the fourth wall, my conversation with Noam Miller. So today on the podcast, uh, I've got Noam Miller, who is, I should say doctor with everybody, but I'm not going to because I don't call myself doctor. Um, so Noam Miller, and Noam's in uh, the psych department at... Uh, uh, what is it? Water. Well, I keep wanting to say Waterloo, Laurier, which is in Waterloo, right? Yeah. Okay. Um, and how long have you been there, Noam? Uh, just a year, almost exactly a year. That's pretty exciting. So it's your first so, real sort of job, sort of it isn't a postdoc kind of thing. Yes, very much so. So it's been, yes, it's been a strange year <laughs> trying to adjust to my new status. Right. Because post, postdocs are really low on the totem pole. And then suddenly you're kind of at the top or, you know, higher up in yes. the totem pole. Yeah. When I was a postdoc, I found that the worst part was there was never, when you filled out a form for something at the university, there's no box to check. Yes. You're, you're in limbo. Yeah. Are you a graduate you're, student? No. Are you faculty? No. Are you staff? Yeah. No. I'm working under the, <laughs> I work at the pleasure of someone's research grant. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So that's so kind of exciting. You know, you get, get the, get the new gig, uh, set, You've been setting up your lab and all that kind of stuff? Or? Yeah, I've been setting up um, actually two labs. I have a, a fish lab and a bird lab. Nice. And um, yeah, it's, it's going nicely. Finally starting to run experiments and have students coming in. And so it's, it's nice to That's cool. finally get to, to do all this stuff that I've been dreaming of throughout my post. <laughs> yeah, all this stuff that you've been trained for for the last umpteen <laughs> years. Right? right. Now, you started out as uh, you have a degree, your undergraduate degrees in biology, right? Yeah, uh, I did that in Israel at Tel Aviv University. Right. And um, yeah, I was, I was in biology and um, I just, I had to do an undergrad thesis and I got in touch with this guy, uh, Ilan Golani, who happened to do behavior 
things. Right. Uh, and he's kind of on the border. And, um, and I did work with him on rats uh, exploring novel environments. Nice. So how, how rats figure out, how rats kind of map out environments that they've never been in before. Oh, cool stuff. And, yeah, and then we did some lesion stuff with that as well. Uh, and then, yeah, and then I, I just kind of got really interested in that. And so... Uh, okay, so when you were doing biology, uh, you weren't thinking much about behavior to begin with, uh, probably, right? Uh, no, so I, I kind of went into biology because I had done biology in high school. Yeah. And um, I thought, oh, I, I already know something about this, so I, I can do this. And um, I just took this class in uh, animal behavior, mm-hmm. uh, the biology perspective. And biologists kind of think about animal behavior quite differently than psychologists yes. do. And, uh, but it sounded really interesting, and, uh, and uh, Elon was willing to take me into his lab to, to do an undergrad thesis, and it yeah. kind of just went from there. Nice. So, I mean, now, the interesting thing is, partway, uh, at some point, either before or after this, you do a, ma- a music degree. Was it before the biology or after the biology? Uh, it was after the biology. That's so, cool as hell, I think. I don't know. Yeah. Um, I, while I was doing my undergrad in biology... I realized or decided or, or had some kind of brain fart that I really <laughs> wanted to be a musician. Okay. That this was my path. Uh, and so I actually came to Canada to, to become a musician and did a degree in music. Okay, so you're growing up in Israel, right? And, yes. And then you're, you, you go do biology and then you decide, I want to move to Canada and be a musician. Yeah, I mean, it wasn't cool. quite that clear cut. Um, I, I decided I wanted to be a musician, and uh, I was a, a clarinetist. I played the clarinet. Yeah. And there was this really great, famous clarinet teacher in Toronto. Oh, okay. Now that now it all kind of comes together. Yeah, and so I went to study with him. I didn't know anything about Toronto. I, I could not have found Canada on a map. <laughs> and, um, but he, he was in Toronto, and so I just went to Toronto, just like that. Didn't know anybody anywhere. Nice. Um, so it was sort and of yeah, adventure. did a degree in music. Um, yeah, and then while I was doing this degree in music, uh, I was broke, <laughs> and uh, you know, living the starving musician life. Right, of course, important. Yes. You're not a real unless you're starving a little. <laughs> uh, but I needed I needed some sort of part time job to uh, to survive, and I happened to look up people who had done things scientifically that were similar to what I had done in my undergrad. And I found Sarah Shuttleworth's website. Uh, And I sent her an email saying, I really need a part-time job. And she hired me as an RA. Oh, that's great. Yeah, it was amazing. And so all through my my music undergrad, I was actually working for Sarah part-time as a research assistant. Wow. Um, And and when I finished my degree in music and, and I, I worked as a, I was a music librarian for a while and I had a chamber ensemble for a while. I did all kinds of un, unsuccessful things. Uh, <laughs> I realized that I really couldn't make a living as a musician. Sure. Uh, Sarah, Sarah said, well, you know, you could, you could come to grad school. And so, and I said, well, could I come to grad school in your lab? And she said, yeah, sure. Uh, and so, so that was that. And then, then I went to work with Sarah for my master's. Oh, that, that's, that's a really cool story. I, 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 it's funny how everybody I've talked to so far, and, and me included, I think, uh, as well, the, the reason people get into this a lot of times uh, is just complete coincidence and, and circumstance and just dumb luck. Yeah. Yeah, um, no, no planning whatsoever. 
Oh yeah. yeah. I, I don't know anybody yet who said, uh, and I really honestly don't know anybody who said, you know, ever since I was 10, I decided to study spatial cognition and <laughs> Corvettes. <laughs> and I don't think right. I'd trust someone like that. <laughs> right. That's right. Um, so when you were working with, in, with Sarah, uh, for your masters, you, you guys came up with, uh, a model, the, the, the Miller Shuttleworth model or the MS model uh, of uh, <laughs> sort of spatial reorientation. The sort of, that's the Chang task basically, right? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I like to call it geometry learning, uh, yeah. which is probably, which is probably imprecise, but I think everybody knows what you mean by it. So that helps. Yeah. Uh, and, yeah. So yeah, I mean, initially uh, my master's was doing experiments on geometry learning mm-hmm. uh, with, with rats in an arena and the experiments were all a miserable failure. Uh, and we even, we even at one point, um, Ken Cheng came to visit and, um, he came to the lab and we actually like brought him in to my experimental room for him to tell us what I was doing wrong. Right. Like, like why, like, why are they not doing this? And he gave us a couple of pointers of, oh, you know, this might be the problem. And by that point I was close to the end of my master's and it was too late to fix all the problems, but I was kind of doing this modeling on the side. Um, and that became the, the one publishable aspect of my master's. And that you could actually explain yeah. uh, a lot of the geometry learning in an associative way. Right. Now, as, as somebody who started out as a, a biologist, you probably didn't know a whole great deal about associative learning and the Rascorla-Wagner model and all that stuff, right? I yeah, I didn't know anything about it. Um, and I started out, I, I've always been kind of fascinated by modeling things and just the, this idea that you can reproduce mathematically what you're doing. Mm-hmm. And biologists also, <clears throat> in biology departments, you're, you're a lot more expected to do that kind of thing. Sure. Uh, you know, e- ecologists model things all the time. Yeah, yeah. And, and so I, I just started modeling this, this geometry task, just doing completely terrible, wrong things. <laughs> and Sarah said, well, if you're going to model learning, you, you really need to know, at least know the Riscorla-Wagner model. And right. she gave me their original paper to read, and then some um, some summaries of it from from people's textbooks. Right. And I went, "Oh, this is amazing! I had never heard of this before." Yeah. Um, and then I I kind of tried to use Rascola Wagner as a as a basis for the model, and uh, and with Sarah's help, it uh, it worked out. It kind of it it turned out that it could explain a lot of the existing geometry learning data. Yeah, I mean, one of the things I like about Rascola Wagner is that when you think about it, it's a model of surprise, right? Yeah, exactly. Yeah, like the animal goes, "Whoa, that's new! I'm going to learn a lot right now." Uh, Yeah, the idea, idea mathematically model surprise, I think, is is kind of neat. Yeah, I what what I love about it is that it's it's really simple. I mean, it's really easy to point to all the various parameters in the model and go, "Okay." I can kind of understand the psychological construct that this refers to. Yes. Uh, which, you know, some other modeling techniques, without naming names, it's, it's yes. very difficult. You get, you get a model that does what you want it to do, but then you don't actually necessarily understand why it's doing that. Yeah. And with, with Rascorla-Wagner, I feel like we can always come up with a sentence that explains why it's doing what it's doing. Yeah. And that, now, that yeah. to me, is important to have this common sense understanding of why your model works. No, that makes a great deal of sense. Now, some, there were some things, and I, I think I cut you off before, but I said that there are some things that it had trouble, uh, that, that the model has ha- had trouble with. And then there was this sort of back and forth in the literature, um, uh, even up until 
gee, just a couple of years ago, right? Oh, yeah. I mean, even it's it's ongoing. Um, I mean, there's there's still I still every now and then kind of get papers to review of people testing the model or trying things out or uh, showing in their experiments that the model either can or cannot explain their data. Uh, right. And it's been it's been amazing. I mean, I, I never expected this, but it's it's generated a lot of research, which is kind of what you hope for from a model. That's what a model's supposed to do, right? Besides yeah. predict stuff, yeah, it's, it should generate stuff, yeah. Um, so it's generated a lot of tests and, and some things that some kind of some of the research that has come out after the model has been it's been able to explain uh, and some of the things that have come out it hasn't been able to explain. Sure. So clearly it's it's not the whole story. But yeah, it's it's been really amazing the amount of interest and, and activity that is generated. Some of that obviously it's come under attack from some of those things. Um, and I think that's great too. I mean, I've I, I feel like I've managed to do something that has made people angry, and and they <laughs> want to attack it, and yeah. that's much better than them being indifferent to it. Yeah, uh, you know, I mean, I I can't expect everybody to love the model. I think. You know, there are people who like it and there are people who really hate it, but that's, I'm fine with that. Yeah. It's not, um, I try to not take it personally when people no, publish I mean, things saying sure. like, you know, the Miller Shuttleworth model is nonsense and doesn't work. And I'm like, okay, yeah, probably. You're, you're probably right. <laughs> uh, go, go ahead and improve it. I mean, or toss it out and, and you know, show me something else uh, that's, right. that's better. And there has been, I mean, Ken Chang has come up with, uh, you know, his view matching model, which explains mm-hmm. a lot of data that quite a bit of the stuff, the Miller Shuttleworth stuff doesn't. And uh, Nora Newcomb has like her model of how this stuff works mostly in humans, which is right. also explains a different subset of the data. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, it's it's a, I think it's a really cool field. Uh, and I'm, I'm just glad that the model was part of it. Yeah, and I think it's it's interesting, too, because, I mean, uh, we both know many of the people that uh have have criticized it and it's it's not like yeah. it's not like you walk by them at a conference and they you sort of stare at each other you know no it's, no not at all yeah it's all it's all pretty cool i don't think people great, that yeah i don't think people that aren't in science at least i mean i don't know I, it could be that our subfields just really kind of friendly or something um but i don't think people realize that when people criticize each other in papers they aren't actually criticizing the person and I, yeah. I remember actually Sarah explaining this to me once because someone said that something I did, I can't remember what the hell it is now. I'm old, eh? Um, <laughs> but something, that's something I did that I did wrong. And, yeah. and, and, and it, was, it was actually in a paper. Like a thing that we did wasn't – our interpretation was wrong. And she said, oh, well, I disagree with this. And she had a very sort of stern look on her – you know the stern look she would get gets on her face? Yeah, um, And I, I said, well, yeah, that's right. And I said, it kind of <laughs> makes me angry. And she said – you shouldn't be angry. You should be angry at us. I said, Oh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> you know, and, and, and it's, it's like I said, I think people that aren't actually in the area or in science in general don't understand that. So you finish up with Sarah. And I remember her talking about you because it was this uh, strange sort of, I've got this, this student now and he used to be my RA and he's also got a music degree and he's a great clarinet player. It's like, okay. That's <laughs> right. <laughs> that was, sure. Yeah. This was me trying, trying to balance the, the two things uh, unsuccessfully. Right. I, my clarinet <laughs> teacher used to say that I would be the best clarinetist of all the biologists and the best biologist of all the clarinetists. It's uh, kind of backhanded insult. Uh, yes. Oh, not kind of. <laughs> no, no. Yes, <laughs> definitely. Um, so, yeah, I had, to, I had to kind of pick, and eventually I picked sure. science. 
Um, so you, f- you finish up doing your master's with Sarah, and you went on and worked with Robert Gerlai uh, doing. That's right. Uh, That's right. So, yeah. Yeah. So so Sarah wanted to retire, and and didn't want to hang around and wait for me to uh, to, to do my PhD. Right. Uh, and so, um, and and that wasn't the only reason. But um, so yeah, I went to work with Robert, and uh, he was a he had a fish lab. He's a fish zebrafish yeah. researcher. Um, and so I started working with the fish. Uh, again, it's one of these accidental falling into things. I didn't know anything about fish. I'd never worked with fish. I'd never had pet fish before. <laughs> I, knew, I knew nothing about fish. Right. Um, but, but I went into this fish lab, and, um, and it was just starting up the lab. Right. Uh, Robert had just come to U of T. And, um, and yeah, and then I uh, started out in his lab trying to do the things that I knew, which was learning. Right. And trying to get the fish to learn things, and I spent a horribly unproductive year trying to build an operant box for fish, <laughs> uh, which which completely failed. Right, uh, and, and still the the ruins of it are probably lying in Robert's lab somewhere in some corner. Right, um, and then and then kind of realized, okay, it's it's difficult to get the fish to do these things that I really want them to do. Yeah, but this whole swimming around in groups thing, they kind of just do naturally. Yeah. You don't need to teach them to do it. You just throw them in the tank and they swim around in a group. Yeah. Uh, so why not study that? And there really wasn't anyone in Robert's lab studying schooling at the time. Okay. Um, there, there weren't a lot of people in the lab at all. Um, and so I kind of just started messing around with that, uh, not knowing very much about it. And that, that turned into my, my PhD, looking at the, how the fish move together and how they coordinate their movements in the group. Yeah, and that it's interesting too because Robert's background basically is behavior genetics, right? Yeah, yeah. And he's a, he's a geneticist by training, and yeah. Um, yeah, for sure. And he he was just starting up his lab because he had worked in industry for a long time, oh. and was really interested in zebrafish as a model for you know disease models or for just a general cognitive model to kind of okay. replace. I think he has this dream that he can replace mice and rats with zebrafish. <laughs> well, why not? Uh, yeah, no, and it's, I mean, they have become a lot more popular since he started working with them. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, and so, yeah, doing the, this, the kind of behavioral stuff, there was a lot of, always a lot of kind of pharmacological and, uh, you know, more molecular techniques going on in the lab in parallel. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so, yeah, that was really, really cool and really interesting, but we, we wanted to really figure out the behavior so that we could do good behavioral assays. Right. So you've got basically two guys in a psychology department, neither of which you had one psychology degree, a master's. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> and again, I, uh, I, I, yeah, it's, it's not, and it's not uncommon because I, our, our field really kind of, you got your foot in like, you're straddling, I'm trying to think of a metaphor here. You're straddling usually yeah, no. like psych, psych, psychology, biology, neuroscience, all these things together. Um, right. And you can, I, I and some think yeah. of, I, I used to think of it as you're, you've managed to put yourself in a position where you can be disowned by two different groups of people. <laughs> uh, you know, the, the ecologists can say, well, he's not one of us. And the psychologists can say, well, he's not really one of us either. Yeah. Yeah. That's, uh, which that's makes it really no fun point. when you're trying to get a job. <laughs> uh, you can apply a lot of places and then they yes. all have this really easy reason to reject you. <laughs> that, that Your was cynicism no is, is excellent. So, yeah. <laughs> I really appreciate it. Um, yeah, so w- 
in, in, in Robert's lab, you're, you're working on, on schooling behavior and you are interested. I mean, bo- both of you guys, uh, because of your backgrounds, I think not only have an interest in, in mechanism, but a really big interest in function. Right. I mean, so yeah, you're, sure. and you're talking about whole groups of animals making decisions rather than individual animals. Um, which I know some, I don't know why, but somehow to me that kind of goes with function. Um, yeah, for sure. Yeah. And there's, so there's, well, I guess the way it goes with function is that one of the reasons for being in a group, one of the advantages of being in a group is that the decisions you make in a group are better. Yes. And so, so there, so function kind of comes into it there and, um, it, it's a little harder to study because, you know, you just have a group of fish swimming around and yeah. figuring out what exactly they're doing is harder. Um, and also, as I learned in the lab, fish are really, really kind of alien. They're not, you know, with rats and, and even with birds, you kind of have an intuition of, of what they're going to do. I mean, they eat similar stuff to what we eat and they yeah. breathe the same stuff we breathe. And, and the fish are just so different uh, that, right. that it makes it really, I, I think, intriguing to try and figure out what's going on there behaviorally. Yeah, and I think getting inside the head, I mean, I've talked many times about how trying to get inside the head of an animal is a bad idea. Right. But getting inside the head of a rat or a, a primate is even easier, what with us being right. primates. Uh, but even a bird, you can kind of, for some reason, but the idea of like swimming around in this big, thick medium. Yeah, <laughs> uh, for sure. Uh, you know, trying to get your head around that is, is uh, and of course, it's, it's not good to try to get your head to, to try to sort of, you shouldn't anthropomorphize, but. Yeah, you know. Uh, nonetheless, I, I see what you mean. I've, I've never actually, I, I did a little bit of stuff with fish. It never really went anywhere. Back when I was in Newfoundland, because, uh, well, you know, fish, right. Newfoundland, you kind of have to. It's the law. Um, sure. Yeah, but uh, and I, we had some money from I don't know, Department of Fisheries and Oceans or something. But it never really, I it never really went anywhere. But I remember looking at this, and it was the same sort of thing. I was looking at some group stuff. Just uh, I can't even frankly remember what it was, and trying to think like that is so much more difficult because they are really alien. It's a very good way to put it. They're alien. It'd almost be like working with, um, you know, social insects or something, something you just yeah, would exactly. look at. Yeah, exactly. I mean, social insects would be even weirder. I can't, I can't imagine. No, um, they're yeah. organized. They're, they're organized in there. I mean, they're apparently, it seems like they're so regimented, you know, it's, it, it's a really weird, I, I don't know how, I mean, I don't think I could ever really, you know, there are people studying their cognition and doing really cool things. Oh, hell yeah. Uh, but like some of the, you know, Karen Hollis is doing this really cool totally. stuff. With and, and like, so, um, yeah, it's, I, I don't know. I, I had worked previously mostly with rats. Right. Um, and, and now switching to the fish was this very, I, I think it changed my approach a little bit. You can't okay. be quite as, as direct. Um, how did it change your approach? I mean, it's, it's an interesting thing you just said. Well, I think, I, I think you, you become a little bit more detached. It's, it becomes more kind of mathematical and uh, almost, I don't want to say behaviorist, but almost like you're, you're doing, you, there, there's this behavior going on and you're just going to do these analyses on it. You don't kind of look at it and go, yeah, I can kind of see what's going on here. Okay. You, okay, that makes, some, that makes the, some sense. Let, yeah, you let the analysis tell you what's going on more just because it's harder to, to actually get an intuition of what's going on. I don't know if that's a good thing or a bad thing. 
it kind of yeah. just is. But it's a thing. Yeah, exactly. No, that, 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 that actually makes some sense. I mean, on, and on some level, it's, it, that's, it, in some level, I think it is a good thing. I mean, one of the, and I think I mentioned this in a previous episode, but uh, somebody once asked uh, Sarah at an ornithology con- conference uh, what, what species she studied, and she incredulously said, I don't study species, I study problems. <laughs> right. <laughs> Which, that's exactly. It's a very good answer. It's a very Sarah Shuttleworth answer as well. Yeah, um, for sure. Uh, and it's actually right. I mean, you know, people say, people always ask me things like, what kind of bird's that? And I go, I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> right. <laughs> really, really don't, really don't care either. <laughs> it just yeah. doesn't interest me. Um, I'd like to know how, how it's, rem- I wonder how it's navigating though. That's a cool question. <laughs> see, that's, okay. that's, that's the thing for me. Um, yes, I guess it does. I could see how it sort of could change your, your perspective on things. And that's, that's actually kind of cool. Um, you still kept working when you were doing your postdoc with uh, in 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 the sort of social collective decision making kind of thing has become your uh, a stomping ground to use another yeah. cliche. I can't. I'm using so many cliches today. It's horrible. <laughs> um, yeah, I, I did. So I went back to a biology department for my postdoc right. um, just because. And um, yeah, and and working on how how really trying to so. Let me see if I can put this uh, coherently. So <laughs> I think there's, there's been a lot of study on collective behavior by mm-hmm. biologists and ecologists. Sure. Um, and really not so much by psychologists. Um, but then the biologists and the ecologists, they ask somewhat different questions from what the psychologists ask. So sure. they're not so interested in cognitive mechanisms, for example. Right. They, they care less generally. And so... I really wanted to kind of bring those things together and actually look at, well, you've got these groups and they're moving around and the biologists know quite a bit about how fish groups especially move around and, and, and make collective decisions. But what are the actual cognitive mechanisms going on in there while you're doing that? And it's, it's a little weird because the cognitive mechanisms obviously are at the individual level. They're, they're happening inside a brain. Sure. So they have inside one brain, but then there's interactions with other individuals at the behavioral level. Um, and so trying to, to kind of bring those two layers together is, is kind of what I started trying to do in my postdoc and I'm continuing to try to do now. Right. Um, um, and it's, yeah. it's nice because it, I think it bridges the kind of what psychologists have been doing and what biologists have been doing. Um, and, and again, it's, you, get, you get to the point where they both say, yeah, that's wrong. Um, they, they both they both dislike your approach somehow, right. uh, and if you're really lucky, you get to a point where they both like your approach, and then I think you can keep something, maybe. Well, I think one of the problems that, uh, and it's it's a lot smaller problem than it used to be, is that you know psychologists get so interested in mechanism um, that they ignore function um, completely, right. you know. And then on the I, other I think hand, you're yeah. small problem than it used to be. It's way smaller than it used to be. I mean, I'm... And uh, I, thanks uh, yeah. to people like, you know, Al Camel and Sarah, who have yeah. been pushing for a long time. Um, and I think psychologists, by and large, have realized how much they can learn from biologists. Um, yes. It hasn't gone so much the other way. Trying <laughs> I to agree with you. Trying to talk to biologists about cognitive mechanisms. You have these blank stares that, that they really don't care very much. Most of them. Yeah, uh, that's right. I don't want yeah. to realize. Yeah, I, I don't study that. I, I don't care. I mean, that's the sort of the reply you often get, and I or or the implicit reply you get. And I often, you know, bring up you know Tinbergen's four whys, and it's like you haven't, you don't understand right. it yet. You don't right. understand it. You got to understand mechanism. Um, and I think that 
it's interesting because like the, the stuff that you were doing, some of the, the, the modeling, and you've still been into this modeling scene. Uh, I've always kind of wanted yeah. to be into modeling, but it frightens me too much, and it, it's, it's, it seems like it's very mathy. Um, <laughs> but, uh, yeah, it's a little mathy. I mean, I think, I mean, as, as some of the uh, attacks on the middle of Shuttleworth model have shown, I knew a lot less math when I started doing this than I probably should have. <laughs> because because I've, I've made, you know, mistakes along the way that really, had I known my math properly, I would not have made. Sure. Um, but I don't know. I mean, I've always, I, think, I think the approach is jump in and do it as best as you can. Yes. Um, and then let the reviewers tell you that you don't know what you're doing. <laughs> yeah. uh, but, um, yeah, the, there is, I think there is math in it. There is quite a bit of math in it. But I, I think you, at, at least the way I've done it, is kind of developing, developing the math skills as I need them. Right. Uh, and, and acquiring them as I go. But yeah. I, I think it is imp- important. I mean, we talk, we give lip service to this idea of, well, experiments drive models, and then the models drive more experiments. And it's, I, I think, unfortunately, relatively rare that, that a lab does both. Yeah. Uh, and I think it's important to, to have both of them happening in the same lab, because the, the process of one driving the other becomes a lot more direct. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So, uh, so yeah, I've I've kind of very carefully tried to carve out time for myself to do both. And I mean, uh, looking at uh, one of the papers that uh, recent one, and that's the, what the collective learning and optimal consensus decisions in social animal groups. And this is basically a, a modeling right. thing, right there, right? Um, walk walk me through that paper a little bit. Uh, sure. So so that paper really connects quite well to the Miller Shuttleworth model, um, where. The idea here was to say, well, if we take the, the, what we know about the mechanisms of individual learning, right, and let's not add anything to that body of knowledge. Right. Just take how we already know individuals learn and just throw that into a group and look at how the dynamics work when the learning still happens at the individual level based on experiences. But decisions, the, the decisions that animals make are no longer purely individual. Because the decisions that you make are also affected by the decisions made by other individuals in the group. Mm -hmm. And so if, for example, um, you really want to go see some movie, but all of your friends want to go see a different movie, then you're probably going to go end up to go going to see the other movie. Um, And that changes the experiences that you have in your life. And the experiences that you have determine what kinds of things you have the opportunity to learn. Yeah. Um, and so at, at the very least, kind of what uh, the, the stuff coming into your learning is affected by what's going on in your group. Right. And obviously, the change, that's going to change what you learn, which is going to change the effect that you have on the rest of the group later. Uh, and, so, and so there's kind of a, a feed-forward mechanism here. Right. And so we, just took, we basically took the Rescorla-Wagner model as is, without changing anything, um, and stuck the, the kind of Miller-Shuttleworth modification onto it to make it operant so that right. the animals were making decisions. Um, and then we just put them, these, these animals, these agents, we put them in a group. Um, and we basically said, well, what's the simplest kind of group decision-making that we can have and that, that we actually see a lot of in the animal kingdom? And that's just consensus, consensus majority decision-making. So basically, mm. everyone in the group has to make the same decision. The group has to stay together. And it's just each individual in the group votes, and the group does whatever the majority decides. Right. 
Um, and so we just kind of put those things together uh, in the model and, and ran it under you know, a wide range of, of different situations. And you get some, some really neat effects um, of different individuals learning different things. And the effect that we were particularly interested in is that you can actually calculate what the optimal learning rule would be. Nice. Uh, if, if you were going to be a perfect learner and maximally use the information that's available in your environment, um, there's a, you know, you could do, since there's uncertainty in your environment, you can't be perfect, but, but you can do quite well, depending on right. how viable the cues in your environment are. And, and we show that this really, really simple model, which is really just majority rule with the Scorlo-Wagner, uh, comes very, very close to being optimal across pretty much the entire parameter space. Huh. Um, and, and kind of reacts to things that aren't explicitly built into the model, like the size of the group and, nice. um, and, and things like that. Uh, and then, you know, it gets more complicated from there. I don't know if you want me to go into it more well, you, than that. You, no, that's, I mean, the, the thing that I like about it is that when stuff, when it does seem to, t- when, when models seem to take care of things they weren't exactly supposed to do, you right. know, like they, they make predictions and you go, oh, that, well, that's weird. That happens, but I wasn't trying to predict that. Right, and that's exactly. that, that, that. That's sort of what you're talking about, right? It ends. It ends up sort of like makes makes bonus predictions, in a way. Uh, yeah, yeah, pretty much. I mean, it, it turns out that the big bonus prediction is that it turns out that the the best learning strategy, how you should uh, mm-hmm. consider different cues, depends on the size of the group that you're in. Right. Um, when you're in a really big group, there's a, kind of a lot of collective intelligence going on, and um, and we didn't put that into the model at all. But when we actually run the model at different group sizes, the learning that you get changes as yeah. a function of group size in yeah. such a way as to remain optimal. And that's just, I mean, I think it's just a consequence of Riscola-Wagner's kind of hill climbing strategy right. where what we've done is we've, by changing the size of the group, we've changed the hill. And, and Riscola-Wagner kind of says, well, I don't care. I'm just going to climb this new hill you've created and get to the okay. optimal point anyway. Right. Um, so that that was a really kind of cool thing about it. That that is pretty neat. Um, I'll I'll actually put up I'll put a link uh, in the in the blog post to the paper because uh, uh, people yeah, really yeah. should check it out. I I I was reading I read it over the last couple of days. I just came back from a podcasting conference and I read it on an airplane. Um, and there are uh, conferences. Oh yeah, there, there's conferences about everything. Wow. Yeah, and you actually con- go there? I mean, yeah. wouldn't you just inter- virtually? No, but what's what's the, you you can't do nearly as much drinking that way. Oh, I see. Okay. Um, well, point. you can, except that it, it becomes sad and depressing if it's all just drinking over Skype. Uh, right. So, <laughs> you know, and that, that makes you, instead of being somebody who's interested in podcasting, that makes you an alcoholic. Those are, those are, those are two different <laughs> things. Right. They, they aren't mutually exclusive, of course. Uh, right. <laughs> yeah. But yes, yeah, so I, was, I was reading the, the, the paper on, on, on the plane on the way home and, um, uh, and on my iPad, and the person beside me was looking at me, and she says, what are you reading? I said, uh... Yeah, it's. Uh, I said I, I hate to say this, but it would be too hard for me to explain this to you. And she said, "Oh, right, okay." <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I hate being a dick like that, but it's like you know, it's this isn't you, you, you wouldn't you wouldn't like this lady. Um, yeah, it's I, it's kind of. I think it's relatively easy to get once you know Riscola Wagner. If you've never heard oh, yeah, of Riscola it, Wagner, it's oh, yeah. a little tough. But if you know Riscola Wagner, you're like, oh yeah, okay, I see. They just kind of stuck this thing on top of Riscola Wagner. 
Yeah, it's amazing what, what Rescorla Wagner has done, too. I mean, over the years, when you think about it, just two guys who were graduate students at the time uh, come up with this thing and that, you know, 40-odd years later, almost 50 years later now, yeah. um, is, is still generating uh, predictions. It's, it's making new models happen. Uh, like yeah. we talked about today, so it's it blows me away. Um, yeah, no, it's, I'm, a, I'm a big fan. One of the one of the kind of great moments of my life was after the Miller Shuttleworth model came out. I got an email from Bob Rescorla, nice saying like, you know, congratulations, this is a really nice development of your of of what I've done. Um, it was really Sarah. Sarah immediately said you should print that out and frame it. <laughs> uh, so that that was really cool. Oh yeah. Yeah, he's, he's a. I've yeah, never met him once, but a, he's a, he's a cool guy. It's so simple. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I, again, what I like about it, it's such a simple model that's yet so powerful. Yeah, and that's the best kind. Um, now, and what I also I think like sorry, just no, one last thing about this. What I like is that you know a lot of a lot of people nowadays in learning are doing reinforcement learning and a lot more complicated kind of things. Mm-hmm. And what I find cool about all that is that other than in really complicated situations all of those newer models kind of reduced the Rescorla-Wagner in, in most of the simple situations that we're thinking about. Yep. So even, even the new modern stuff, kind of most of the time, you know, it's like using Newtonian physics instead of Einsteinian physics. Yeah. Like, well, for most, it really do, unless you're moving at the speed of light, it really doesn't matter. Uh, <laughs> and it's kind of yeah. the same thing. Like, unless you've got some weird speed of light experiment where reinforcement learning says something different. Most of those models still basically predict the same things that Rescola Wagner does. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's funny teaching when I'm teaching learning. Uh, it, it's kind of like that, where you know they, they when I get to the last two weeks and we talk about comparative cognition, they say, well, "Why didn't you start with all this cool stuff?" It's like, well, <laughs> right. you know, you wouldn't understand all this cool stuff if you didn't understand all that <laughs> other. Oh, I don't know. Let's call it. Boring stuff. Um, as I tell them when I'm te- <laughs> right. when, I, when, I, when I'm teaching reinforcement, I, I love Rescorla Wagner. I love teaching the associative learning stuff. That's great. It's right. when you get on to teaching schedules of reinforcement. Yeah, um, they get I, that glassy stare. Oh, like they understand I, it. I tell them I might fall asleep while lecturing. That's how much it bores me. It's just right. And then it's an FR two. This is an FR five. <laughs> and this is an FR ten. It's an FR twenty. Yeah. So, so you're saying the animals are counting? Probably, but Skinner wasn't. <laughs> it's right. uh, what I like yeah. Is that yeah. Every now and then, when the students eventually get into the lab, then they—I mean, you know—I now have pigeons doing operant box things in in my lab, and nice. the students there are like, "Oh, okay, we're actually going to do an an fr whatever." Like, <laughs> you know, that suddenly it comes to life for them, and they're like, "Oh, this this actually—you actually do this. It's not just numbers in a textbook." Yeah, exactly. Um, I guess to, to wrap up, the only other thing, I w- you, you sent me another paper which sort of goes with it. It's, it's more of an, an empirical one, uh, the, the Miller et al. paper from, from PNAS. Um, just tell me a little bit about that. Um, so that was basically, again, this, this question of how groups make collective decisions. Yep. And where that paper came from was a lot of people, uh, mostly biologists, had for years been doing these studies where the big question kind of in collective decision-making is how do you balance out your personal information and your social information? I mean, I, I know things about the world from my own experiences, but then there are a bunch of people doing other things and maybe they know something too. So I should pay attention to what they're doing. Sure. 
And, and uh, a lot of the experiments in, in how to balance those things out, people had done these kind of Y-maze experiments where the kind of test animal, quite often a fish, wanted to, wanted to go down one arm, but then there were other individuals going down the other arm. Mm-hmm. And so you have this conflict situation where personal and social information conflict, and, and you can change you know, how recent your social information is or how good it is and how many conspecifics there are. And, and it occurred to us that, well, one of the things is that you haven't really given the animal a good choice. I mean, there are two bad choices. I can ignore my personal information and follow the group, or I can ignore the group and follow my personal information. Right. And so we wanted to see if we could, again, get a little bit more into the mechanism of how groups were making collective decisions by giving them a third option be a good option. Like, there should be one option that balances, that includes both your personal information and social information. Um, and, and we kind of started from there. Um, that wasn't exactly how the experiment ended up, but it, it did kind of, but by giving them a, a consensus option, right. we kind of made it possible to see more how, how each individual was, was balancing out the, the social information. And it turned out that as a lot of the models had predicted, and some experimental data, to be honest, had already shown, um, that the more conspecifics there are, the more you pay attention to that, um, to that social information, and the less right. you, you trust the personal information. Uh, that, that was kind of the, the big message there. Right. So, I mean, <clears throat> you, you, you're basically, you, you think, like, now that, now that everything's all set up, you've, you've got this... Uh, you're going to keep doing the sort of two-pronged approach, a bit of modeling and like the modeling and the empirical stuff? Yeah, I mean, I'm hoping to. Um, it's, to, to be honest, one of the, the main challenges is finding students who can and will do the modeling. Okay. Uh, the students are, are very happy to come to the lab and work with the, we have fish and pigeons and we have quail in the lab now too. Yeah. And, um, and they're very happy to, to work with the animals and, and set up experiments and do that stuff. But sure. actually finding students who are interested in modeling and or have the skills to do it uh, is harder. Right. So for the moment, any modeling I'm doing, I'm doing myself. Um, but then okay. I, I am definitely hoping to, to keep doing both things in parallel and, uh, and, and get the students to, to learn the skills that they need. I mean, I think we're in a world today where if you're a scientist without computer skills, you're, you're going to be in trouble. Oh, yeah. And com- skills, I think, I think computer skills no longer just means being able to use Excel and Word. It actually <laughs> means being able to code and, and yes. being able to write some of your own stats tests because you're not always going to be in a situation where SPSS is going to have the test that you need. Uh, yeah. So, uh, so at the very least, you should know how to script. And, and so I think... I think giving students the opportunity in the lab to learn that stuff and to write really basic, I mean, you don't need a lot of math to write basic models. Uh, you know, the, the, the coding skills and the math skills that you need to write an implementation of Rescorla-Wagner, for example, are pretty minimal. Yeah. Uh, and so I think if students can get to that point, then maybe in some subset of them it'll kick in and they'll go, this is really cool and fun. And, yeah. I, and it's fast. I don't need to muck around with animals. I can write code in the middle of the night and have it compile, you know, and, and have my simulations running while I laze around and, and do other things. Um, <laughs> that's, that's the real joy of, of doing theoretical work is that it's computer yeah. does all the real. Yeah. 
you and it's so much faster. Than, it's so much faster than it used to be with computer speeds. Now I remember when Rob Hampton and Ken Cheng and I did a timing paper uh, on chickadees and the peak procedure. We were um, because we had scrounged all everything, including the computer that right. we were using to analyze stuff. It was an Apple II uh, E. <laughs> it used to take like wow. yeah, it t- and it would take like. I remember we were working on it, and back in the lab at UFT, it was taking us three and four, uh, two or three days for it to run. You'd just you'd put a sign right. on saying "Do not turn off this computer." Uh, and yeah. then we decided, what well, you know, and we put it away for a while, put the stuff away, the the data and everything. And then I came back, I came back to it in about 1998, and I said, you know, guys, we're so close to publishing this. Let's, I'll just take the the, the code that we were using to do the simulations, and I'll put it onto this Windows machine I have. So right. I did that. And I looked at uh, my wife and my daughter, and I said, well, why don't we uh, – this is going to take a while. Uh, so I'm finished really working for now. So what, guys want to go to a movie or something? And I turn around, and it's finished yeah. already. <laughs> it's oh. like, wait. <laughs> right. Wow. Okay. But we still so went things, to the movie. Yeah. <laughs> but, yeah, things yeah. have changed a lot. I mean, it, now, I mean, when I run really large-scale simulations, we do them on clusters that are right. run by – you know, Ontario has this, this great um, computing um, – it's called SharkNet. That's uh, that we awesome. can run. And so you, you can, yeah, you can do things really quickly and run really large scale things. Right. And um, yeah, it's, I, I think it's interesting and, and important to do both. So I'm hopefully going to keep doing both things. Cool. Well, uh, I guess if people want to check out stuff at the lab, uh, your website is, what is it? CollectiveCognition.weebly. Um, that's right. Com. CollectiveCognition.weebly.com uh, is my uh, website. Yeah. And, uh, you know, so if people want to get a hold of you or find out more about your research, they can, they can find stuff there, right? Yeah, for sure. And, you know, one of these days I'll actually update it. I haven't updated it in a long time, but I will. Uh, especially, especially now that you've told people to, to go there. Now I have yes. to update it. Yes, exactly. Uh, yeah. But, if you, um, yeah. Yeah, for sure. And uh, if anybody wants to get a hold of me, you can follow me on Twitter at dbroadbeck. You can uh, find uh, stuff I do at davebroadbeck.com, broken-area.com, besteveradeever.com, mmvh.ca, oh, and a whole bunch of other places. Uh, I really appreciate you uh, sitting down with me over Skype today uh, and, and talking about, the, about your stuff, Noam. Uh, I've uh, really liked it for a long time, so it's really been a lot of fun talking to you. Yeah, thank you very much. It's been great to be here. Chief among these scientists is psychologist John Watson who offers a theory that is the mirror opposite of eugenics. Pigeon learned that pecking the disc produced a reward. Then the behavior of pecking could be studied in relation to how often that reward was offered. Or in Skinner's terms, what was the schedule of reinforcement? The main thing is what, what we call schedules of reinforcement. Reinforcement is what the layman calls reward, and you can schedule it uh, so that a reward occurs every now and then when a pigeon does something. We usually use a response with a pigeon pecking a little disc, a little spot in the wall, and you can reinforce with food, but you don't reinforce every time, you every, perhaps every tenth time, or perhaps only once every minute or something like that. There are a very large number of, of schedules, and they have their uh, special effects. I'm not going to be able to do that.
the same genome and so they would try to we are a clone if you want and, and we try to help our um, gametes to go into the next generation in this case it's a conflicting system and um, for that reason this is very interesting this is a parasite and this is um, one of the many hosts that is feeding this baby which doesn't look at all like the, like the host and nevertheless they managed to use precise trickery to make them do what they want.